right. Um, well, let's pray before we start. Heavenly Father, um, we thank you for this day. I thank you for this church, for this congregation. Um, I thank you for uh, our pastors, Daryl and Bethany, and just for the love and the humility with which they lead us. Um, it's not easy to uh, lead uh, such a diverse and ever-changing group of people, and I'm just so grateful, Lord, that um, they truly have hearts of, of love and of shepherds. Um, and Lord, I, I pray for this time. I pray for this conversation. Holy Spirit, we ask that you would lead this conversation, that um, your love, your wisdom, your words would be uh, at the forefront of this conversation, that it would not be the wisdom of the world that we speak with, um, but that it would be heavenly wisdom which comes from above. And Lord, we just say that um, we are not we are not enough to, uh, to, to tackle this injustice and to solve this injustice of racism on our own. We have no ability to do that, but Lord, you, you do. You're not overwhelmed by it. You're not afraid of it. And um, you have so much love and hope in your heart when you look at your church, and we thank you for that. So we give this time to you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right. Well, um, I am Christina, Christina Gonzalez Ho, um, and uh, <laughs> and uh, I will be moderating this uh, discussion today. I just want to say again, so grateful for Daryl and Bethany for um, you know putting this together and uh, inviting each one of us to be a part of this. We feel really, really blessed and really honored um, to you know just to have leaders with with such love and care for for our congregation. Um, you can clap, you can clap. You know, just any time you feel like clapping and happiness, joy, just let it out. Um, Why well, keep it inside? Um, so I, I would like to start this discussion with uh, a story. Um, it's a story that actually, if you were here for Bishop uh, Green's sermon a few Sundays ago, um, he started this story. He told about half of the story, so I want to kind of get back into it. And it comes from Acts 6. Um, so, yeah, you can pull it up on your, your phones just to make sure I'm not making it up. Um, so, uh, Acts 6, it's a story from the early church, um, and it centers around um, an issue of racism that was alive and well in society in that time. It was um, very common, uh, and it was, you know, part of culture for Hebrew-speaking Jews to look down upon Greek-speaking Jews, right? So the Hebrew-speaking Jews were the ones who considered themselves kind of pure, and, you know, they had stayed in Israel. They hadn't been scattered to uh, the other countries. They hadn't allowed the Greek language and the Greek customs into their lives, and so they considered themselves better than the Greek-speaking Jews um, who had kind of been influenced by the Greek culture because they had been scattered into those lands. Um, now, when the early church starts, you have all, you know, Jews from all over coming into Jerusalem to say, you know, I want to be a part of this. I want to be a part of the church. I believe in Jesus. And so now you have this church that is bound together by something that's so much stronger than culture or language. They're bound together by their belief 
in Jesus and their love for him. And it's very countercultural what they're doing, right? I mean, Jesus was just crucified. Um, society did not accept him. And so now to, be, to have a group of people that are saying, we believe that this man who was crucified rose from the dead and he is the Messiah and he is our God was very countercultural, okay? But even in the midst of this group of very countercultural people that were bound together by something so much deeper and stronger than, than race, than culture, um, there was this division that started seeping in. Um, and you see that in Acts 6, you see that um, the, the church had set up this distribution of food for the widows in the church, and that the Greek-speaking Jews complained and said, you know what, our widows are being neglected in this distribution. Um, and as Bishop Green shared, you know, this wasn't some little thing like, oops, I forgot, I forgot about all the Greek-speaking widows. It was it was more of a, you know, um, intentional thing. And um, that's, not, that's not pretty, right, to, to have something like that within the church. That's not, it's not godly. It's not something that um, we as a church would be proud of. Um, but, and here's kind of where uh, Bishop Green stopped and, and started to talk about, you know, his own personal story. But I, I, want to continue and talk about this story because the church's response to this is something that is just so beautiful and so hopeful. Um, what the church does is the leaders get together and say, okay, we need to appoint people to be in charge of this distribution. We, the apostles, need to be in charge of spreading the gospel. And so, you know, we need to have some sort of structure. But the people they put in charge of the distribution are, um, if you go to the next verse or maybe the one after that. Anyway, the verse that, that lists out the seven names of the people that they choose, okay? Um, they're all Greek names. All of the people that they chose to put in charge of this distribution were Greek-speaking Jews. Um, this is just a really amazing thing, right? Because in the, the, the leaders, you know, could have said, you know what, like, stop complaining. You know, at least we're giving you food. Um, you know, like, I... I'm sure, like, whoever was in charge, like, wasn't really trying to discriminate against you, like, you know, kind of sweep it under the rug. But they said, no, we're going to do something even more countercultural than just, like, having everybody together in one room. We are going to actually put you guys in charge, the ones that are discriminated against in society, um, the ones who feel overlooked in our church. We are going to raise you up to this you know, higher position within the church and put you in charge of even distributing to the Hebrew-speaking widows. Um, so they kind of totally turn it on its head. And in this story, I see such a picture of what the church is called to be. The church is called to be the, the leader, you know, to be at the forefront of pursuing justice where there is any type of injustice, right? We talk about the injustice of abortion. And we are called to be at the forefront of speaking for the, the voiceless, right? People who do not have a voice for themselves. And in the same way, we are called to be at the forefront of, um, of pursuing justice at, when it comes to race and racism. Um, and, you know, as somebody who, uh, I, I came here to go to Harvard Law School, and it's, you know, very liberal <laughs> institution, you know, and, and I, something that is, was really heavy on my heart the whole time I was there was, you know, why, 
why is it now that the liberal kind of media and, and academia has this reputation for being champions of social justice? You know, because that should be the church. You know, we are the ones who actually have a mandate from the Lord to spread the gospel, the gospel of reconciliation, you know, the gospel of God's desire to reconcile all things in Jesus. And we are the ones, we are the community that Jesus specifically prayed for that we would be one as he and the Father are one, you know. So um, I believe that the church is called to be a light, that, that the rest of the world should look to us and actually be jealous of how well we love each other and how unified we are and how, um, you know, I, you know in, in like liberal places, they talk about having a safe space, you know, like, oh, this is a safe space, da 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 da, da. Well, I believe that the church should be the, you know, the safest space. It should be the, the place where people feel the most loved and the most um, cared for. It doesn't mean that we say, like, there's no right or wrong. You can do whatever you want. You know, that doesn't mean that at all, but it means that we have such a love that kind of transcends that earthly wisdom um, that is really able to start breaking down barriers that um, seemed insurmountable. And like I prayed, I don't think that we can do this on our own. It's not by our wisdom. It's not by our great ideas. It's not even by, you know, doing panels like this. It is only by by the Spirit. It's only by the Holy Spirit, and this is something he already desires to do. Um, so with that, um, let's jump right into this, to this conversation. Um, I th thought it would be good to start with um, just letting all the panel members introduce themselves, your name, uh, when you started coming to Hilltop, and one thing that you love about this church. Cool. Hi, uh, my name is Nafemi. Um, I moved to Boston in June 2014, uh, and Hilltop was the very first church I visited, and I've just stayed since. Um, I heard about like IHOP, J-HOP through um, like Big Sisters in Christ at Amherst College. Uh, I went to school in Western Mass together with Daniela, uh, so if she mentioned the same thing, that's why. <laughs> and John Cho, who's also here. Uh, and we had these uh, people kind of just like took us under their wings when we were little freshmen. Um, and they would just kind of drag us along to all sorts of things. Like, we're like, oh, there's this 40 day fast. And <laughs> just kind of just drag us in. We ha I had no idea what a fast was, but I did it. <laughs> like, uh, just like there would be a conference in Boston that involved J Hub, and they would drag us along. And that was kind of like um, my beginning to be awakened to like the work of the Holy Spirit and revival and all of these things. Uh, and so when we came to Boston, Austin, um, I heard that J-Hop had planted a church, uh, and so we came and we visited, um, and I just kind of felt the Holy Spirit asking me to stay uh, right away. Um, and it's funny because even that, even saying the Holy Spirit was telling me to do something would have been like so weird at the church we went to in college. Uh, so uh, basically, like I had gone to this church for four years, and then I stayed for another year to serve there. Um, and, you know, things like talking about the Holy Spirit was just so foreign. Um, and, but for some reason, the Lord had kept me there and just kind of like not let me notice how hungry I was <laughs> until I left. Uh, so it was like I came to Hilltop and it, all of a sudden I was like, oh, my God, there is a feast and I am starving. Um, <laughs> and so I was just like so excited and just so ready to jump in. Um, yeah. Hello, I'm Annie Harlan, married to this guy. 
Um, <laughs> so I started coming to Hilltop 2014, um, summer of 2014, and I came and uh, we were meeting in another place. Um, actually met this guy, um, one of the first person to meet, and Miriam, and they were just so welcoming, and it was such a community that I really um, loved, and even just from our proposal that happened, from um, the flash map that happened, everyone just coming together to just really celebrate us, and that just really blew me away. So I love the community here, and that's why I stay. Cool. All right, guys, I'm Matt. That's my wife, Annie, as she mentioned. We're married. I know. <laughs> the first thing you probably noticed, well, he's black and she's Korean. Go ahead and say it. Let's just get past <laughs> the awkwardness, all right? One thing I want everyone to do before we start is to take a deep breath. We're going to get through this. It's going to be okay. Don't sweat. But um, I've been coming to Hilltop for four years. Um, I was working as a security guard at a church. So attractive, I know. And um, God gave me a word to come here to Boston. And uh, as soon as I entered the house of prayer, I knew that this was a place that I needed to plant my feet. Um, just to see a community of people going after God in the way that they do uh, just ignited something in my heart, something I hadn't seen before and have yet to see. And so that's why I'm here and I'm still here. But um, yeah, so I started to get involved. Um, I said, if this is my church, then I'm going to treat it like my church and just started to serve Daryl and Bethany. And then about a year ago, I became the college pastor here. So pastoring the, the college students um, that are awesome. You guys are great. But um, yeah, so that's my story. Okay, so my name is Daniela Cho, and I started coming here about two years ago. My husband and I actually came once when we were dating, once when we were engaged, and then we came when we were married. And that's when we decided to stay. Uh, we were trying to serve at another church and come to prayer, but we felt like we really uh, wanted to be in a community of people that were passionate about God, especially in the first few months of our marriage. So we've been here ever since. I'm Christian Gonzalez Ho. We have the same last name, very progressive people. <laughs> um, <laughs> kidding, kidding. Um, <laughs> sorry. I was actually here the first day that J-Hop started uh, the 40-day fast. I came with Shara Pradhan. It's kind of funny. I had no idea where, I literally like had no idea where I was. And we drove to this church and parked somewhere and didn't get a ticket. And I was happy. Um, but it was, yeah, so then, and then later on, what, like 10 years later I, or something like that, I came uh, to school here at Harvard. Um, yeah, and I love being here. I came, and true, uh, true story, yes, I, was, I wasn't sure if I was going to stay, and then I had met Christina before, and then she was going here. I was a Christian, okay? I wasn't like, yeah, and I was like, and I was, I went to school like, a couple blocks away, and I was like, well, the easiest way for me to see her would probably be to go to church on Sunday. <laughs> but anyway, anyway. I love it here, and we're married, and we're still here. It's just... <laughs> All right, and, and I'm Christina again. Um, <laughs> I started coming to Hilltop uh, in 2011 when I came here for law school. Um, I remember back in the day when we would meet in the living room at J-Hop. That was a sweet time. Um, here I met my best friend, Sarah Riyad, um, and later my roommate, and then my new roommate, Christian, <laughs> Christian Gonzalez. 
Um, and I just love this church. The moment I walked in the very first day, it was a Saturday night prayer set, and I just started crying immediately because I felt the presence of God. Daryl was singing Revelation song. <laughs> <laughs> as he continued to do for many Saturday nights after that. And it was always just as good. Um, all right. So now that you know a little bit about us, um, let's just get right into it. Um, so, you know, we're here. This panel is talking about race, racism. Um, first question, why talk about racism? Doesn't that kind of just lead to division? Isn't that a difficult, thorny topic? Um, any takers? Well, yeah, oh, sorry. Are you kidding? Yeah. Um, I, I, think it's, I think it's actually apropos. Sorry, I'll probably use a lot of like five-syllable words, but I will explain them afterwards. Um, I think it's <laughs> apropos for us to be talking about this during Advent um, because I mean, what did Jesus come here to do? You read Isaiah, right? He came to uh, remove oppression. He came to uh, release us from the set captives free. Um, so I think that this season is a, is actually the exact time we should be talking about this. If this is an if, like indeed, and it, I, I'll use conditional phrases, but I'm I'm kind of I'm being rhetorical. But if this is in fact uh, <clears throat> if this is in fact an injustice, then why else would we be here on a Sunday morning during Christmas talking about it, right? Um, and this is what we should be doing. Yeah, um, and also, I don't know if the slide is up about how to talk about. Yeah, no, maybe. Okay, it wasn't. Yeah, no, okay. Uh, <laughs> the slide is not up. Um, but there are, hmm, the way to talk. Okay, so there's this guy, his name is Glenn Singleton. He did research for many years about how to have difficult conversations. Um, and I, we just want you guys to think about it the same way you would think about um, difficult conversations with your family members uh, of things you disagree about. It's like no one is leaving the room, quitting the family. Uh, like we are a family and we just have to talk about this and there are ways to talk about that. Can I look at your phone, the thing I sent to you? Okay, because I left my phone because I expected this to be up, sorry. My fault. Um, so there are kind of four principles of having courageous conversations um, that this guy, Glenn Singleton, came up with. Um, okay. <laughs> I, one of them that I can remember off the top of my head uh, is to expect and, uh, and accept discomfort. Uh, it is going to be uncomfortable. Sometimes we are talking about race. And for a lot of us, whether you're black, white, Hispanic, whatever you are, like, this is not a dinner table conversation, right? Uh, you've been told that you shouldn't talk about it because it's not, it's not good to point out that people are black or whatever it is. Like, there's kind of a, like a fear, like, oh, I don't want to talk about race because then I'll be a racist. Uh, so I think the first step is just to like, accept that this is going to be uncomfortable at times, and that's okay. Um, the other thing is to stay engaged. Uh, sometimes you're going to want to check out um, because it gets too hard, because it gets too uncomfortable. Uh, just kind of like remind yourself to stay engaged. If you find yourself getting disengaged, if you find yourself um, kind of using some of those mechanisms that our minds use when things just get too hard, like start being defensive or check out, just kind of like remind yourself, hey, this is family, stay engaged. 
Um, another one is speak your truth. So whatever I say about my experience might not be yours, uh, but that's okay. <laughs> my experience is not yours, but we're still family, and we can, uh, we can still navigate that together. So if my truth is not your truth, just listen to mine. Um, and they don't have to match. Uh, and lastly, expect and accept non-closure. Non so we are in this room, we have about, what, like 30, 40 minutes left. <laughs> We're not going to talk about everything there is to talk about with respect to race. There will be so many questions that you have that will not be answered, so many uncomfortable things that you'll be left with, so many but now what that you'll be left with, and that's okay. Because once again, we're family, and uh, we expect and we pray and we hope that this panel discussion will lead us into discussions in smaller groups with people that you know that, and you love and you trust. Uh, and you can kind of like work through all of those things that are remaining um, outside of this space. Yeah, are we, can we all accept those four things? All right, just to recap, because I'm a teacher. <laughs> Stay engaged, <laughs> experience discomfort uh, and expect it, uh, speak your truth, uh, expect and accept non-closure, non okay? Yeah, and I would just add, um, you know, for me personally, it was very difficult for me to talk about race and to talk about racism um, for much of my life. Um, I was very much of the opinion that racism is a thing of the past and, like, let's not, you know, create division by by shouting like that's racist you're racist you know like guys like please you know let's love each other let's focus on the positive um I also grew up in Orange County which is about like 60 percent white 40 percent Asian or was when I grew up there um and I think there was like one black person at my at my high school um and so I just didn't ever really, you know, come across stories. However, my father, who was an immigrant um, from Taiwan, he would talk about racism. And I would always be like, oh, dad, like, stop. You know, he would say things like, you better watch out. Like, you know, America has, like, interned Asian people before. We could be next. Like, you could wake up tomorrow and they could decide to put all the Chinese people in internment camps. And I'd be like, oh, dad, like, <laughs> please stop. Um, but for him, like, he had had experiences where coming from Taiwan, he moved right to West Virginia, um, which didn't really have any Asian people there at the time. Um, and he did encounter a lot of racism. He had people straight up tell him, like, do not look for a job here. We don't need Asian people here at our company. Um, so he definitely had those personal experiences. He had, even moving to California, people make fun of his English um, at work, um, you know, like in a, in a, business like kind of corporate setting, professional setting, um, kind of demean him. Um, and those things would make me mad, but because I felt so mad, I then didn't want to think about it. And I would think like, well, for me, I speak good English and, you know, I am not, I do not encounter racism. So let's just try to move forward. Let's just try to like not, you know, stay in that ugly past. Um, it wasn't until I got to college uh, and joined a singing group that I wanted to be a part of because it was a really good singing group. It happened to be that the singing group was all about singing songs from the African diaspora um, and, and primarily from South Africa in the, the anti-apartheid struggle. Um, so a lot of the, the members of the singing group were African-American and we would talk about race a lot. <laughs> and at first I was like, oh my gosh, like why are we talking about race all the time? Um, but the more I got to know and love the members 
members of my sing group and, and hear their own personal stories again and be like, wow, these are people my age. They don't seem like whiners and complainers to me. They don't seem overly sensitive. And like, how can I look at their faces and say, your story isn't real. Like, I don't think that really happened. I think you made it up. I think that's when my heart really started to be like, oh, like, what? There must be something still going on here and having to really start facing those things. Um, and then, you know, coming into law school and learning kind of the way that our legal system works and the ways in which it, the justice system can often be very unjust and can skew uh, towards racial injustice very, very heavily. Um, and seeing that it's not just hurt feelings, um, it is actually um, life and death that, that can so often be at stake. Um, so, uh, but, but all that being said, it, it has been a learning process, right, to, to uh, get used to what you're talking about. How do you have conversations, productive, Christ-centered conversations about such a difficult topic. Um, one thing I know we talked about um, in our previous discussions was um, wanting to create spaces where there's grace for people to like make mistakes, right? To, to not know like, well, what's the like the right term? Like, can I say black person? Is that racist? Um, <laughs> you know, like, what if I say something racist? What if somebody, you know, I say something and somebody tells me I'm racist, you know, like, how do we create spaces for that? And I think the, the tools that you shared are really helpful. Does anyone else want to chime in for any experiences that you've had or um, things that you find helpful in these discussions? So when Matt and I started dating, um, <laughs> um, as you can see, I'm Korean and he's black. Um, and <laughs> I think a lot of things that we... Uh, there are definitely a lot of cultural differences, but also how do we really talk about race um, within our relationship and that people do see us differently and people, um, Koreans have different um, perspective um, about blacks and blacks have different perspectives about Koreans. And so I think once we started to talk about those things um, and that's where a lot of um, clarification happens. So. One time, um, Nefemi and Matt and I were just talking about just general things and we got to a topic of race and we were talking about how there were um, a lot of police shooting that was going on. So when this, this is when Black Lives Matter was coming up. And for me, being honest, like I just didn't have the whole context of what did it really mean um, to to see a black person being sh shot. Um, and also, like, what does Black Lives Matter really mean? And so for me to just even raise those questions, I think there was a lot of tension because um, I was trying to understand, but it was really hurtful, um, even for Matt or Nefemi, to just really talk about it. Um, so I think from there, we concluded that we should definitely talk about these things rather than just putting it aside um, and just really trying to understand. And also Matt brought up the point, like when, you, when people are sharing, um, people of other race are sharing your stories, um, actually listen and you don't have to say, I understand because I don't understand fully. Um, so it, and he also raised up a point that when you say, I understand, that means I understand I'm just repeating myself again. Um, and then 
So just making sure that you're um, being available and um, and just being a listener. So do you want to add something? Yeah, I just want to add something. So while we were having these conversations kind of centered around race, I think one thing we had to, um, Biden and so one thing we had to understand was there was only a level of depth that we could both have about each other's experience. And I think a lot of times when it comes to the issue of race, especially with friends or in the context of relationships, we feel like, well, if I don't understand it, then I just kind of shy away from it. And it's almost like an a impediment for us really entering into deep relationship. And so I think what was really helpful for us is that, you know, as me and Annie are learning about each other um, through our relationship and through our marriage, there's only um, so much that we understand right now. And it doesn't mean that we can't know more by communicating and by understanding um, the way, you know, Annie grew up and the way I grew up. And actually through that process of having difficult conversations, it's actually knitted us together um, I think in a in a closer fashion than before because I mean before it's like hey you know like I love you but I truly don't understand your grief I don't understand what you're going through right now and it was through actually sitting down and taking intentional time um, to understand one it's a safe place because it's my wife you know divorce is not an option for us and so <laughs> uh, we we never put that card on the table or, or or anything and so we we really had to stare each other in the eye and to say share with me your issue, share with me your experience. And I think out of that came a lot of healing for both of us. So. Um, I think maybe it would be helpful to um, like have kind of like a working definition of racism. I think that word has a lot of different meanings for different people, but if just for the purpose of, of this conversation, um, is there, Danielle, you want to share? So I have two definitions of racism that I'm going to share with you this morning. One is more academic, and it's more historical. And the other is more contemporary and, I think, practical. So the second one is that we're going to be using, the one that we're going to be using today as our working definition of racism. But I think the first one is important because it gives us a context. So the first definition comes from this book. It's called Racism, A Short History. And... Um, I'm sure, well, no, I'll do that. Okay, so the definition here is that racism exists when one ethnic group uh, dominates, excludes, or seeks to eliminate another on the basis of differences that it believes are hereditary and unalterable. And so this, this guy, he kind of writes uh, in a more historical context, he writes about three different scenarios or three different um, I guess, regimes that happened during the 1900s. He talks about apartheid in South Africa, Jim Crow in the American South, and he talks about Nazi Germany. And in all three of these cases, it is a state or a nation that is, uh, where, where there is one group that is dominating the other. Uh, so he shares about that. And I, I think th we can hear this definition and kind of be relieved, like, whew, I mean, either really freaked out or relieved, like, wow, we're not, in, we're not in Nazi Germany anymore. There's no Jim Crow, no, no legalized uh, segregation. So it, it can seem a little bit intense. But I would argue that something that is important there is just the idea that there is one group that uh, dominates or that believes that they are superior to the other. And this is the, this is the transition to the next definition, which is a little bit more practical for us. Uh, this definition is shared by John Piper in a book called Bloodlines, which you can actually get as a free PDF. And he, in his book, uses a definition from the Presbyterian Church in America, which is the church that Tim Keller comes from, just to give you some context. This definition goes like this. 
Racism is an explicit or implicit belief or practice that qualitatively distinguishes or values one race over another race. And the important parts here are that racism can be explicit or implicit. So the last definition is more explicit. We're talking about segregation, laws, things like that. The other part is implicit, and that is something that's more subconscious that you might not be aware of. Uh, you might think, well, I don't really say racist things, or I don't you know, graffiti the N-word on walls, so I'm not a racist. And I'm not saying anyone is racist, but... Um, I know, I know. I'm not saying that. But the more implicit some subconscious parts are the more difficult things to get to. But I think that's the part where the fact that we're Christians is really significant. Yeah. Because for non-Christians, you don't want to hear maybe that you're not perfect or that you're not good. You, kinda, you might be like, oh, I don't want to talk about this. But we know that we have sin. We already have that understanding that we have areas in which we miss the mark. And this is just one more place where we might have some bias in our heart, some, some darkness to deal with, and that's not a bad thing. We, we all have these biases and sin areas to work through. So that's what makes us unique and special and what makes me excited about having this discussion. So we'll be talking more about what these uh, subconscious biases can look like today. I'm just going to share. I think it's important also, I think... Um, if you're gonna, if we're gonna call this injustice, is also to recognize what kind of scriptural dimensions this has. Because if we, if you're saying that you're a Christian and, or um, um, <clears throat> or you're aligning yourself with that system of thought, I think it's really important to know what the Bible is actually saying and why this is actually really critical. So maybe you're not going out, um, but the same way that we say, um, God forgive our nation for abortion, and we like, although you may or may not have had an abortion, you're saying. It doesn't matter. Like we stand, um, we stand in a very dangerous place because our nation is embracing this practice um, and and legitimizing it. Um, so, just from Proverbs twenty two twenty two twenty three, says, "Do not crush the afflicted at the gate, for the Lord will plead their case, and He will take the life of those who rob them." Um, in Isaiah ten, it says, "Woe to those who enact any evil statutes." and to those who constantly record unjust decisions, so as to deprive the needy of justice and rob the poor of my people of their rights. It goes on, Isaiah goes on to talk, um, so then I'll go to Isaiah 30. And I, I think this is where it gets really quite intense. Um, for this is a rebellious people. These are false sons, sons who refuse to listen to the instruction of the Lord. Um, they tell their seers, you must not see visions. And the prophets, you must not prophesy to us what is right. Speak to us pleasant words. And other uh, parts of Isaiah, it says, peace, peace. Um, declare to us peace when there is no peace. Prophesy illusions. Get out of the way. Turn aside from the path. Let us hear no more about the Holy One of Israel. Therefore, the Lord says... Since you have rejected this word and you have put your trust in oppression and guile and have relied upon these things, therefore this iniquity will be to you like a breach about to fall and a bulge in a high wall whose collapse will come suddenly as a pottery, piece of pottery being smashed and unable to be put back together again. If our culture and our society is practicing in an injustice in this way, if our, if our justice system is practicing some form of, if, if it's systematically performing oppression, in this manner, um, our nation stands um, in judgment. 
and no, very unequivocally. Um, later on, if you want to say, oh, that's the Old Testament, then you go to Revelations, and it talks about it, Babylon. It talks about how Babylon will severely be judged because it traffics the bodies and souls of men. And having worked in human trafficking, yes, you can consider that, yeah, the literal selling of flesh, but it's when a society believes it has the authority to... Um, to crush the bodies and souls of men at will because of their particular dispositions and their, their makeups and their hereditary um, conditions. So if we, stand in this, if we stand in this culture, then none of us in the room can say, oh, I'm not, ra- I'm not ra- racism. Racism isn't this like soft injustice, right? It becomes a very concrete thing that if it exists, it must be dealt with and it must be dealt with in our hearts. I mean, I'm Hispanic. I'm black and I'm white, right? So, and I'm Chinese. So, you, you, we can have this discussion all around. I have discussion inside myself, right? <laughs> um, I've had to, I've had to process all of this for a long time. When we met, I didn't want to hear about like all these statistics she was pulling from her law school. So I was like, one, you're you're a rich Asian girl from Irvine. You have nothing. You, <laughs> she lived in Orange County. Okay. Anyway. If you weren't worried, you were not going to have food like the next day when you grew up, you're rich in my book, right? So um, so for me, I was like, I grew up in Union City. Um, we, were, we were poor. We were, um, it was the most densely populated city in the world at the time when I was growing up, and it was 95% Hispanic. Um, I lived with my grandfather, and my grandfather was, was um, so my mom's side, he was Italian, and um, he would just like randomly say things like, yeah, those those niggers aren't like this, or, and then um, yeah, he spits like they're like. But he, but obviously he let his his daughter marry. My dad is like black and Hispanic. Like you can't like be fooled like you can with me. I'm everything. People are like, what tribe are you from? I'm like, oh, sorry. Anywhere in the world they go, they say that. Except Norway, they don't really say that in Norway. Um, anyway. So I'm sitting there as a kid, right? I'm sitting there as a kid, and I know very definitively, even though I'm, I know, like, I'm, like, six, right? So I know I'm lucky I don't look like my dad. Because if I looked like my dad, I would, I would fit whatever my grandfather is talking about right now. And so for the rest of my life, I just didn't, the only thing I knew I had to get rid of was the last name Gonzalez. Like, even when I met Christina... My goal was to, like, change my name to Christian Alexander. Yes, I'm a designer, so I was like, oh, that sounds so, like, sexy and swank. Um, um, but, <laughs> so, anyway, so, but Christian Gonzalez, who's going to want to buy clothes made by Christian Gonzalez, right? That's going to be, like, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. But I, I knew, but you know, like, automatically what's going to sell and what's not, right? Who's going to go to the Gonzalez Runway Show at, you know, Fashion Week? Not many people. Uh, and and my, my intention was to achieve my way out of my uh, racial ethnicity. So my goal was, I'm going to go to Princeton. Um, I'm going to, I'm just going to beat you at your own game. So I never learned Spanish. Guess what language I learned in school? Take a wild guess. I learned Greek. And sometimes a little Latin, so I could be the best old white person I could. Um, so, and, no, but in much of it, it I, I say it jokingly, but it was very much an intention to erase who I was. Right? It was the it was the knowledge that in order for me to succeed in America, I had to erase who I was to be valued or heard. 
Um, and even when I got to Harvard, even, um, even with all, I mean, I have a huge resume of accomplishments. Like I still, I still couldn't, I still couldn't find that confidence even within myself. I was still trying to erase myself um, and still trying to forget who I was. And like, um, even though I was at the simultaneously like proud of who I was, but I felt the shame of being proud of who I was because that wasn't going to like work, you know, the higher and upper echelons of society. So not only is it systemic racism, not only is this a condition in which it's very dangerous for our society to be in biblically, but it's also dangerous for us, us to then hate our own identity, which the Father has given us. And if you empower somebody to hate the identity the Father has given them, you stand in very, we stand in a very, very, whether, it doesn't matter what color you are, we, we are all participating in this culture that's forcing certain individuals in our society to hate the identity which the Father has given them. And you will never see revival come to a nation like that. Wow. Bam. Um, yeah, I mean, I think going... So I, what, one thing I want to say is, you know, we've been talking a lot about systemic racism. And I, I know that we may have, like, d differing and varying backgrounds in, like, w even kind of understanding what that phrase means, right? Like, some of us were, like, black studies majors. Um, and that's, like, the ABCs, right? But some, some of us, like, when I he first heard the word systemic racism, I was like, what? does that mean what you know is that a real thing or not i think that that topic could be a panel discussion in and of itself and unfortunately we don't have time to get into all the little details we wanted to focus more on you know our personal stories because you know we're members of the same body you know us we're in relationship with each other um, but that is something that you know Hopefully, our hope is that as we go on from this panel discussion, this will spark smaller group discussions, right, um, amongst um, each other, where we can talk about these issues, um, you know, in, in a smaller group and spend more time doing that. Um, but I just wanted to know, do you, any, anybody else have um, any stories to share of, um, you know, times that you've experienced similar things to what Christian's talking about, whether overt racism or that, that implicit bias? So actually, I'm going to talk about implicit bias real quick before we um, get into stories, just so that you know what it's about. Uh, it's kind of, it's a pretty academic term, but I feel like it's one of those that's actually quite easy to understand. Um, so I don't know if you're aware of this, whether from hearing about it or you actually lived it, uh, but in 1999, Amadou Diallo, uh, an immigrant from Guinea in West Africa, was shot dead by police 40, 41 times. Um, at the door of his apartment as he was pulling a wallet out of his jacket, 41 bullets in his body. Um, and that kind of like sparked this conversation about what is it, like how is it possible that these cops could swear, these cops were swearing up and down that they saw a gun. They were so sure about it, but it was a wallet. Uh, so it kind of like sparked this conversation of like, how is that possible? Uh, so that led into all this, um, research about uh, the things that, the shortcuts that we take subconsciously uh, when we feel threatened. Uh, so that led into the research about um, implicit bias. So one of the most popular uh, projects that came out of this was that this researcher did a project where uh, he recruited people and he would flash a picture uh, for like 
milliseconds, like super duper quickly. Uh, and I don't know, like for those who know Nero in the room, just pretend you can't hear me because I'm going to kill this, <laughs> completely murder it and not be right, but that's okay. Uh, but if, there, if you see something for short enough time, you don't register it consciously that you've seen it, but your mind registered it. It registers it on a subconscious level. So what they did was they flashed pictures of black and white men for really short so that you couldn't really register it consciously, but you did subconsciously. And then right after, they would flash um, a picture of either a gun or a tool, like a tool like a hammer or like a wrench or a screwdriver or whatever, uh, for just enough for you to see it, but not to be super sure of what it is. Does that make sense? So two steps. Quick picture, not consciously registered. Another picture, enough to consciously register it, but for not, not for long enough for you to be super duper sure what you saw. Uh, and what they found is that whenever the picture of the black man came before a picture of a tool, people would consistently misidentify it as a gun. And whenever the picture of a white man came before a gun, people would consistently misidentify it as a tool. And it was just like, this was it. Like, it was an overwhelming majority of this data that was skewed this way. Um, and it didn't matter who they were testing, whether they were white, black, young, old, everyone exhibited this bias um, as associating black with violence. Uh, and so this has spurred a lot more research since then. It's, I mean, if you think it sounds hokey pokey, I, I, it's pretty well supported. There are a lot of research you can take that you this guys. Test. Right. You can take the test Harvard online. Harvard has a test. Yeah, right. you can look it up, implicit bias test. And I would just like to say that I've taken this test, and as somebody who's like sitting on this panel, moderating a panel about racism, the test found that I am biased against black faces and prefer white faces, right? Like, that's not something that I want to have. That's not something that makes me happy. Um, but it is a reality, right? And so I'm kind of left with, like, okay, Lord, like, you know... What does this mean? Like, where do we go from here? And that's, that's still kind of an open question. Like Nefemi said, like, it's okay to have these open questions. I love what God, what Jesus says to the church in Laodicea, right? He says, you know, you say I am rich and I am well clothed and well fed and I have no need of, of anything. And he says, I wish you would just realize that you're naked and you're poor and you're starving because then I could give you clothes. Then I could give you food. Then I could heal you. You know, so why do we as a church need to say, you know, I know we aspire to be like, there is no slave or free. There is no male or female. There is no Jew or Greek. We are one. Yes, that's what we aspire to be. And that is what we will be. Like it is a promise. God will make us one. You know, we will be united. However, we're still living in this world. We're still living in a very broken world. And, um, you know, it, it, is, it is kind of a fact that throughout history, right, like um, the, the, the history that we have with slavery and the things that came after that, there has been a bias just living in America. You know, you will kind of be inundated with this idea that, you know, to be white is better and to be black is worse even if you are you know asian even if you are black you know it 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 doesn't really matter like what your skin color is we're all just kind of living in this environment that has these wounds and it's okay that wounds take time to heal it's okay to acknowledge that hey we're still broken you know some of that brokenness even trickles into the church that's okay because god is able and he desires to heal. And if we will admit that we need it, he will gladly 
come in and say, okay, like, let's, let's get to work. Yeah. And just to uh, kind of like wrap up what I was saying, it's, um, yeah, so the fact is that our brain makes these connections, uh, is that we're, like Christina says, we're inundated by a media that is biased. And there's been several research about like the portrayal of black people in the media as being violent and, and whatever. Like the fact is that this is what we grow up with, right? Uh, and I just wanna let you know that like, even I'm not excused from this. As a woman, if I'm walking down the street and it's dark at night, I will cross the street if I see a black man walking towards me. <laughs> and like, and that's not because like somehow I'm like racist towards black people. I'm black. My brothers are black. My father is black. I love black men. Like th this is just like you know like I grew up in in a place that was predominantly black. So I think like on a conscious level I don't have this bias against black people. But like when I feel unsafe and my brain needs to make a split second decision. Sometimes I make a decision that is like filled with bias. Um, and that's, you know, like, and I'm just saying that just so that like if you feel condemned and you feel like this is fear, is unfair, uh, I just want to implicate myself in this as well. Um, so to my br white brothers and sisters in the room, if you feel attacked, don't. <laughs> like, you know, we're just talking about sin. This is church. You're used to talking about sin in church. We're sinful. That's not a surprise, you know? And the, the question is like, now where do we go from here? Yeah, so just in sharing, I guess, uh, a story personal to me where implicit bias has, has been pervasive. Um, and, and actually, it's likened to Christian stories. So I grew up in a very multi-ethnic um, high school, um, very high-achieving high school. And um, this particular scenario, I was in class, and I was taking AP English class, and I would always get 89s on everything. Like, it was ridiculous. Like, if you look at my progress report, you guys remember that? It would be like 89, 89, 89, 89, 89. And uh, my teacher was the sweetest teacher. Her name was, I'm not going to say her name. I'll just give her a different name, Miss Simmons. And uh, Miss Simmons was just so nice. I mean, she was just like your apple pie grandma, you know, very sweet. And I remember one day I was like, you know, God is so good. I remember one day I was just praying. I was like, Lord, I feel like I should be getting an A in this class. And he told me, stay after and walk her to her car. Don't know why, but I decided to do it. So I remember I stayed after, I said, Miss Simmons, can I walk you to your car? <laughs> and uh, she was like, yeah, absolutely. I was like, yeah, and also as we're walking, let's, I want to talk about my grade. And uh, she's like, sure. And so I just started to, I was like, you know, I, I love your class. I was like, but for some reason, I don't feel like the grading has been, been fair. I've kind of compared my um, essays versus my peers and not a point of pride, but I feel like my essays are far better than the rest of the class. And I still feel like I'm coming up with this 89. And I needed an, I forgot, I needed an A for something to, to advance into some other course. And I was like, I feel like I'm being held back. And can we just talk about that? And Miss Simmons starts talking to me. She goes, why do you guys always do that? She goes, why can't you guys just be grateful for being in the class with these other students? And me, as a 16-year-old, I was kind of oblivious. I was just like, you guys, what? Like, maybe she's talking about athletes, right? So I was like, she's like, you guys are always running around causing noise. I was like, whoa, Miss Grabs, well, Miss Simmons. <laughs> Miss Simmons, erase the tape. I was like, well, Miss Simmons, you know, running is part of sports. I need to do it to be conditioned. I need to do it to be healthy. And, and I thought she was talk referring to a, a strength and conditioning program that we did in class because we would run after school through the hallways as a form of conditioning instead of going outside because it was too hot. It's Texas. 
And so I was like, yeah, we run all the time. I was like, this is what we do. We're athletes. And she goes, no, you don't get it. And I was like, I don't. And she goes, you know, I came, she was a new teacher. She's like, I came from a inner city school and I tried to help them so much. I tried to help them so much and you don't know what they did to me. And I was like, no, but I'll, I'll be happy to talk about it. I was like, what did they do to you? She goes, you know, I remember one day I was in the room and they just ganged up on me and they decided to beat me. And I made a decision that I was never going to trust a person of color again. And it's just interesting because I never would have known this if I, just even talking from a black person, right, who has experienced racism, who has experienced oppression, I never would have known this if I wasn't able to hear Holy Spirit and to say, let me walk her to her car. And, and so I, I, I'm sharing a little bit of this story just to also show that, you know, as people of color, that we also can play a part in um, reconciliation or conciliation. We also can play a part in um, allowing these conversations and allowing opportunity for these conversations to happen. Because I think it's, it's a very sensitive subject to me, it's a, and especially to be oppressed and to know, to know that you're being oppressed against is difficult to enter into a place of humility. Um, but I just, I'm just going to share this because I think through, throughout my life, you know, I've experienced um, scenarios where I have been oppressed against because of the color of my skin. Like I work in finance and occasionally I'm the only black person that's working in the company or I'm the only black person that's in like a leadership meeting or an executive meeting. And a lot of times I get asked like, oh, can you take notes? And I'm, you know, I'm actually the one running the meeting. So there's a lot of instances where that does play, play a part. But going back to the story, um, what implicit biases and what um, Nefimi was sharing, it's a lot of times when we think about racism, we think it's, a, it's just a, solely a hatred for a person of a different color. But there's actually small nuances and things that happen in our life that could be racist that we're not even aware of subconsciously. And so Ms. Gra- Ms. Simmons, geez, <laughs> Ms. Simmons was referring to a situation in the past where she was treated wrongly by a black person. And because she was treated wrongly by a black person, going forward, she associated her hurt or her, her pain or her perception of a, of a people group based on that interaction. So she saw me in the likeness of those people that hurt her in the past. And so I remember talking to her and um, at that point the conversation was over. And I remember going to uh, the director of the school and I was like, hey, I feel like I'm being cheated. And I remember uh, the director was black and I remember the director telling me and having a very hard conversation with me. She, she said, Matthew, you're gonna have to realize that in your life, you look different. And although it's not fair, although it's not merited, you are going to go through life differently than a lot of your peers who are in your class, who are a different skin color than you. And it was something that I had to realize at a young age. But me, in all my ambition, I was a very ambitious teenager. I said, I'm going to wear a suit every day as a form of protest to my English class. I'm going to change the way I speak, right? I'm going to change the things I do. I'm even going to change my friend group as a form to show that I indeed am different. And going along with what Christian was saying as, as a form of hating yourself, implicit bias and racism is so invidious that it causes a person of a certain ethnic group to even hate themselves unknowingly. And so because my race was an impediment to my success in school and was actually something that derailed um, a lot of things that you know could have been given to me, I decided to even hate my very, the very thing what blackness was. And so I decided to, I was like, okay, I'm going to change the way I talk, going to change the way I dress, and hopefully it's going to work. So uh, I remember I would wear a suit every day to class, and um, my college algebra teacher would say, Matthew, like, the suit is a little bit excessive. She's like, <laughs> can you tone it down? And I was like, Miss uh, Simmons, Simmons number two, 
I was like, you know, I, I'm, I want to go to college and I want to be successful and I'm going to wear a suit to prove to everyone in this school that I am capable of being successful. And until it's recognized, I'm going to continue to wear this dinky suit that I got from Walmart to prove to you guys that I'm able to function on the same level, if not far exceed that of my counterparts. The reality is it didn't work. <laughs> and all of my ambition to, um, to want to be better and to, to want to be accepted and almost pride, I would say, it didn't work. And it was really in that moment in time I really had to come to terms with my faith. Of, do I actually believe that God is an advocate for me? Do I actually believe that the Holy Spirit is a comforter? And for too long, I was trying to do it in my own ability. Right? I was like, if I could just be successful enough, that will somehow, as Christian said, erase uh, people's perception of me. They will somehow see black people in a different light because they see a successful black person. They see someone who's humble. They see someone who's able to listen. But in reality, it didn't work. But what did work, what did help my heart, and what did help me bring understanding to who I am and to even bring confidence to who I am as a black person is in having diff those difficult conversations with the Holy Spirit. And so the Holy Spirit would impress on me to do things like, I want you to, after school, I want you to go and buy the police officer at your school subway. And so I would do things like that. Although I was offended, and although there was wrong being done to me in that moment, I decided in this moment, I could be an advocate. God, I'm going to live as you, dis as you want us to live as Christians. And I'm going to choose to be the extension of your grace, the extension of your love in this school. And actually start to change the hearts of people. We start to have race conversations with the APs who would say, you know what, I have a problem with racism. And for anyone to even acknowledge that, I think, takes a lot. It takes a lot of humility to say, I see you differently for the color of your skin. And so I say that as an encouragement to some of you who are, who are people of color and who are, you know, living in the world, who may see you differently. Um, I truly believe that, as Christina said in John 17, that Holy Spirit, that God's desire is to make us one, that we actually also do play a part in that, and we can play a part in that instrumental process. It's not always going to be fair. It's not always going to work in our favor. But I think what we need to do also as people is we need to say, is it well with my soul? And then choose to live from that place of humility with Holy Spirit. That's good. Um, we are quickly running out of time, so um, I, I, I want to close by talking about, um, w you know, why is this so relevant to our church? Our church, we pray for revival, like, all the time. I love it. Um, you know, I could, I could leave for five years and come back, and we'd still be praying, you know, the same prayers with the same passion for revival. And as Christian kind of alluded to, um, part of that process of pre preparing for revival and desiring it is to say like, Lord, see if there's any offensive way in me and lead me in the way everlasting, you know? And so as this topic is coming up, you know, we, we want to show how um, the issue of race and racial and and racial conciliation and justice is actually tied to revival. Um, and Matt, you wrote a paper on this, so I want to uh, ask you to talk a little bit about that, and then I'll close us off with uh, the very ending of the, f the story I began telling at the beginning. Yeah, so just really quickly, a lot of you guys are familiar with the Azusa Street Revival that happened back in the 1900s. Um, and if you're with not- the what? With the what? Huh, Azusa. Uh, okay. Okay. <laughs> All right, <laughs> uh, the Azusa Street Revival that happened um, back in the 1900s. And in that time, um, there was a man by the name of William J. Seymour um, who was part of a ministry by Charles 
um, Parham. And due to the Jim Crow laws that were happening back in the day, he was not able to be present in the meetings because of the color of his skin. So he, he would have to sit outside and listen um, and to hear what was going on in the room. Um, long story short, he decides to take this message and he gets invited to go to Los Angeles and he's, he's actually brought on as a holiness preacher. And uh, he decides to take this message of speaking in tongues and, and engaging with the Holy Spirit um, to Los Angeles. And the real interesting thing about these meetings were it was probably the, one of the first times in history where there was such a large representation of different ethnic groups in one place. So there was Korean people, there was Hispanic people, there was black people all present, and there was a tangible presence of the Holy Spirit. It was said that there were people that would come to these meetings, um, one being um, William J. Seymour's wife, and then she would automatically just know how to play the piano and start playing, and then she would start to sing in Hebrew, a language that she never knew or studied. And people would be um, kind of blocks away from this meeting that was happening and fall under the conviction of the Holy Spirit. It was crazy, and people were coming by the droves, um, there was one, just one story about the Azusa Street Revival. There was a, a, a reporter coming over from India to kind of write a counter article against it to kind of make fun of what was going on. And he came and he sat in the back and a woman got up and she started to speak um, in, in the evidence of the Holy Spirit, she started to speak in tongues. And the man at the end of the meeting approached her and said, how were you able to know the dialect that I grew up with in my native, in my native land? And uh, he, he said, everything that you said, you were speaking about the account of sin in my life, and you were telling me that I needed to reconcile myself to God. And it, these things were happening, but the interesting thing was it was because the church came together in such an element of unity that we've never seen before. And the interesting thing is the thing that ended the Azusa Street Revival were a sequence of events that happened because of racism also. And so a lot of the preachers that were coming, um, part of the Pentecostal movement, decided to get jealous, and they wanted to uh, recreate the same thing that was happening at Azusa, and they didn't feel like William J. Seymour was adequate enough to lead uh, the sustainability of this revival happening. And so they raised up other things, and they decided to, anyways, long story short, they decided to take the email list, or not the email list, the, the mailing list um, of all the people that uh, were receiving the newspaper, and so the revival died, and you know, here we are today. But the interesting thing is in the Pentecostal um, denomination, at that time, it was so racially divided um, because of, 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 of white ministers not seeing black ministers as adequate ministers. And so not even until recently that there started to be reconciliation between um, white Pentecostals and black Pentecostals at the output of Azusa. And so I just say that because if God did something like that before in our history, he can definitely do it again. He can definitely do it again. I think a lot of times when I think about racism, and I have to repent because I look at it, I was like, Lord, this is too hard. Like, I don't, see a, I don't see an ending to this. You know, it's just so pervasive in us. It's so pervasive that sometimes I have racist thoughts about myself. Like, Black Friday, I was walking through Best Buy, and I felt like I was stealing because, you know, I just felt people looking. I was like, oh, man, I need to go to the front and just show my receipt, and I'll be okay. It's like it even has a, a grip on even people who, who are oppressed by it. But I say all that to say, say that, that if God poured out his spirit like he did in Azusa in the 1900s, pr prior to the civil rights movement, at the end of Reconstructionism in 1877, he can do the same thing in our day and time. And we need to fight for our unity like never before in this day and time. I think a lot of times it's easy just to cast a blind eye to say that person's different, racism, taboo, I don't want to talk about it. But why is racism so taboo to talk about in the church? It shouldn't be. 
it shouldn't it should definitely not be. And I think it is because a lot of us struggle with it in areas that are so deeply seated in our heart that we don't even know how to adjust it. So I want to encourage that. I mean, I think this whole panel, the whole construction of this panel was created that we could start to have these hard conversations as a community. And again, I just want to champion Daryl and Bethany in that of being a church that's willing to do that because this is rare. This is definitely rare, but I feel like this is where the body is to go in this time. We can't have revival without reconciliation, without conciliation. We can't have revival apart from unity. It's the marking sign that we are actually followers of God. He said, they will know you by your love for one another, not your love for the lost. He said, they will know that you are my believers and my followers by your love for one another. So it absolutely does start here. And it absolutely does start with all of us. Yeah, and to just take it from there, like the world will know us by our love for one another. And I, I feel like this is the moment to show that, right? There's no better time. Like a lot of like uh, hurts of the past are like resurfacing. And I just want to talk about like um, in 2014, if you're black and you're in this room, you, you hear 2014, you're like, oh, <laughs> that was when like starting with the summer um, of Eric Garner being strangled to death um, for selling loose cigarettes, of Mike Brown being shot to death on the streets of Missouri. Uh, there are all these things happening of black men being killed by police, unarmed, not having done anything. Um, and I think that that was such a hurtful period of time for a lot of black Christians uh, because it was just the silence. <laughs> the silence was deafening. Um, of brothers and sisters who just were not speaking about it. And, you know, out of that arose a movement, Black Lives Matter, uh, whose, like, basic principle, I, I mean, it's liberal, yes. <laughs> and I'm not saying that you should walk out of here today agreeing with the Black Lives Matter movement. Please hear my heart. Okay. Um, what I'm saying is that, you know, like, this movement, there are people we disagree about certain things, you know, like, pro-life versus pro-choice, you know, this and that, gender identity, yes, yes, yes. Right? But the Basic premise of this movement is, if my hands are up, don't shoot me. How radical. <laughs> like, that was the premise of this movement. You know, it's like, just hands up, don't shoot. Uh, and even though it was that simple, even though it was that basic, even though it was that just like, I'm a human being, uh, there was not only people in the church just being silent about it, there were also the people who were speaking out against it. Uh, and so that created an atmosphere in which, like, the last place, the very last place in which I felt safe to grieve, <laughs> the very last place in which I felt safe to bring my fears to the table was the church. Like I, you know, there were many other people talking about it um, from a critical perspective, from a perspective that was more affirming to, you know, the grieving process that I was going through, but they weren't talking about it from a perspective of hope. And I really wanted someone to tell me what Jesus had to say. Uh, about Mike Brown, what Jesus had to say about Eric Garner, and the church was not that voice. You know, and, and I, uh, instead what was happening was that hushed conversations were happening, you know, between the black people in the church, like, did you hear this? Like, blah, blah, blah. Like, very, like, private, hushed conversation. It was almost like we were afraid to come out and be like, my life matters. And that might be really hard to hear, and I really apologize um, if that's hard to hear. And, and please don't, I mean... I'm not offended. I'm not like the Lord is like worked on a lot of like my 
uh, offense and my unforgiveness. And I think that a lot of the black, your black brothers and sisters will say the same to you, that the Lord is like really dealt with offense in our hearts. But I think the basic point is that the world will know us by our love. So when our brothers and our sisters say, I'm hurting, when our brothers and our sisters say, I don't feel safe, um, I think that what the Lord is calling us to is not counter arguments, is not philosophical like tennis back and forth, is talk to me about it. <laughs> Tell me about your heart. Tell me about how you feel. And that's priority. You know, and, and, I, and I know that Christina is going to end with the rest of that story in Acts, but that's what they did. You know, the widow said we feel discriminated against. They didn't have a philosophical conversation about, oh, actually, if we calculate the rations of food per the contribution, like none of that. They just said, we hear you, we see you, we feel you, you matter, yeah. right? Uh, and that's what the Lord is calling the church to uh, during this season. Thank you. Um, do we have time for the worship team to come up? The children are getting restless. Um, okay. Okay. Can we, uh, okay, so no time for worship. Okay. Um, so I just want to end with, uh, the, re the final line in this story. Um, after they choose the seven Greek speaking men to, uh, distribute the food, it says, so the word of God spread. The number of disciples in Jerusalem increased rapidly, and a large number of priests became obedient to the faith. And this is like literally right after they choose these Greek-speaking men to distribute the food. The food, and so you know, revival is directly linked to unity uh, within the church, and that is something that we are pursuing as a church, um, and it's something we will continue to talk about. Um, and I hope that this conversation up here sparks conversations um, in your own lives on a one-on-one -on -one basis. Um, so, yeah, I just want to pray and close this out. Lord, thank you so much for um, just being with us today. And Holy Spirit, I pray you would continue to speak to us. I pray that um, all the words which you desire to remain in our hearts would just sink in, that we would continue to process with you, with each other, um, that we would continue to have eyes to see and ears to hear what the Spirit is saying about this topic. And you would um, make us one as you and the Father are one. In Jesus' name. <laughs>